0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Stephanie Maximus, and today we'll be discussing a recent perspective piece in the ATS Scholar Journal called COVID-19 and the Early Career Physician Scientist Fostering Resilience Beyond the Pandemic. Um, today we'll be discussing this piece with our guests um, who are here with us today um, and who I'll introduce now. So we have with us today Dr. Corrine Clement um, who is an Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine here at the University of Pittsburgh and her research is focused on epithelial biology of COPD. We also have Dr. Mark Gautier, who's also Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, whose research is focused on immune mechanisms of severe asthma. And we also have today Dr. Josh Anglert, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Program Director for the Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine Fellowship in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at The Ohio State University, and his research is focused on molecular mechanisms of acute lung injury. And Again, I'm Stephanie Maximus, and I'm also an associate professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and my research and focuses in medical education. All right, so getting started, um, talking about your piece, which is very timely as we are here in the, I don't know what to call it anymore, second surge, third surge, middle of, of winter um, COVID-19 pandemic surge here at the end of 2020, as we head into this holiday season, um, we thought it would be, uh, maybe appropriate to, to talk about how the uh, the pandemic is affecting physician scientists as they're progressing along in their careers, um, because a lot of talk has been focused on how it's been going for us as clinicians, but then thinking about um, what's been going on uh, on sort of the science side of things. So um, to Karine and Mark, what motivated you guys to get this group together and write this piece in the first place?
2: So I think early on in the p- pandemic, we had, gotten together a group of junior faculty with some of the leadership within our division. And we were realizing many of the struggles and things that we were talking about or challenges uh, that we were facing during this time were probably things that other people were also facing. And so we thought that with these kind of common threads that we should share those with others and what our experiences are and what we thought might be some actual actionable things that could be done moving forward. Mark, any other thoughts?
0: Uh, no, I, I would agree with that. It's, um, you know, I think the, the thought was to try to, you know, have some, um, you know, some proposals and some ideas and how to, you know, kind of mitigate you know, some of these challenges um, and try to share those with other folks and hopefully start a little bit of a conversation, you know, about how to address some of these issues in, you know, what's a pretty unprecedented, um, you know, time. Um, and, un- and because of that un- unprecedented challenges.
1: So maybe the three of you could speak a little bit to the, like s- some of those specific challenges. Like what has your experience been as an early or mid-career physician scientist during this time? Um, both like, let's talk about the hard things and also then what have you so far found to be the most protective things?
3: So this is Josh, maybe I can take a stab at that one and start. You know, I, I think there's there's, been kind of so much in that we're we're 10 months in and there have been ups and downs both from a clinical standpoint as the virus has ebbed and flowed over time and I think one of the constants in the background has been that for those of us that do research in addition to clinical care you know that's been backburnered a little bit as we've been called to kind of do extra time taking care of patients and uh I think for me, that's probably been the biggest challenge. I mean, there were other logistical challenges, you know, in my role as associate program director for the fellowship, you know, we were coordinating the response and kind of rearranging our clinical services and making sure the fellows take their temperatures every day and and things like that. So there are a lot of kind of moving pieces and, you know, I think faculty and clinicians at at all levels are, are dealing with that. But I, I think one of the things that struck me, particularly when I read the piece in ATS Scholar, was that um, the first thing to kind of go, so to speak, or the easiest thing to back burner is uh, often the research. And especially for people doing laboratory based research that requires either you or your lab members to be in there and kind of doing experiments or pipetting and things like that, you know, a, a lot of universities shut down research entirely. And so, and even now as we move through the pandemic and with the arrival of the vaccine and hope that things are getting better, it's I think been slow to restart. So even though you know some of us have people back in our labs and we're now revising manuscripts and even submitting grants, it's it's still not entirely back to normal. So I, I think for me that that's kind of been the biggest challenge.
2: I think along those same lines, one of the things that I found helpful was just acknowledging that that slowdown has happened and that that's okay because it's happening to everybody. Um, And then even that leadership recognizes that that slowdown has happened in research and is supportive and that that helped me immensely in kind of being able to manage the feelings of anxiety and everything that were coming from feeling like I wasn't as productive as I would have been. And, you know, yes, there are gonna be days where you're writing is slowed down and your data production is slowed down because you've got a two-year-old running around your desk, (laughs) which is a distraction. Um, And then I I think what I had found helpful was sort of breaking down projects into smaller goals that are a little bit more attainable rather than even the bigger goals that we would otherwise have from a research perspective and that we're not going to be able to achieve those bigger goals as quickly. And so break it down smaller to kind of Keep inching forward as much as you can, um, and then even with trainees in the lab, helping them to also identify kind of more manageable, smaller goals um, during this time.
0: Yeah, I would uh, definitely echo you know echo those sentiments. I think there's been a lot of support from um, you know from mentors and from you know division administration, recognizing that it's obviously a very challenging time, especially if you're doing. Um, you know, benchtop research or uh, mirroring model type research. But even if you're doing your research that, you know, theoretically can be done, you know, from home or remotely with just the realization that, you know, the logistics of that can be challenging depending on what else was going on. And so there's been a lot of support there, which has been very helpful. And I think recognition of those challenges. Um, Certainly I do mostly um, benchtop research and and mouse model research, which has been very challenging. you know, initially with everything shut down and then, you know, as Josh mentioned, very slow to restart. Uh, you know, one of the things that I found helpful as much as, as possible was to try to uh, take advantage to branch out into some, some newer areas and some other projects. Um, and so I've been able to do a little bit of work with uh, some chart review EMR type projects that had been sort of side projects um, before, but we've been able to do some, make some progress there Um, as well as being uh, involved with some of the ongoing uh, COVID trials, you know, that they've been, uh, that have started at our center, uh, which has been an opportunity to redirect some of that research time, you know, that can't be as productive in the lab to to some other, you know, productive um, uh, avenues. And so I think that those are opportunities that are available to folks, and that's a great thing to take advantage of.
1: You raised a couple of great points there, Mark. Um, I just wanted to follow up on, can you say a little bit more about, practically day-to-day, like what has the slowdown in the lab meant for you, like in terms of your mouse colonies? And, you know, like, because I think that this looks really different for different people depending on what their research is. And I appreciate that both in the perspective piece and in what all three of you said, to the point that the research is being affected, no matter if you're in the lab or if you're able to do your work remotely, but it may be affecting people in very different ways. So, for folks who don't know what that kind of world looks like, what you know, what has the last few months meant for for the mice, for example?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, the the big challenges that we initially faced, you know, we we completely shut down uh, the labs. And so that meant that we had a lot of of mouse colonies uh, that were running uh, that we keep um, in-house. And so a lot of those mice um, had to be sacrificed uh, because there wasn't room to store them uh, in the uh, animal research facility, which only had a small number of uh, space available to keep colonies ongoing. And we're trying to prioritize uh, in-house developed strains over commercially available strains. And so that meant that we couldn't run models at all, you know, while that was the case. And even once the um, animal research facilities have opened back up, the space has been a lot more limited uh, than it has been in the past. And so that's restricted uh, breeding for mice, uh, which means that just takes longer to get the number of mice needed for experiments. And our experimental protocols for asthma are, are somewhat long, you know, they're four to eight week protocols for these mice and so, normally we would run those right in, um, in parallel. So you've got you know, three or four models running at the same time. They're just harvesting at, at different time points so you can continue to be productive. With the space constraints we have now, we can realistically only run about one or two models at a time. And so that just puts a, a, you know, a kind of a break on how quickly you can run those experiments and collect that data. So um, it just makes it a little bit harder um, to get that data quickly. Um, you know, we, we can still generate the data with the new pandemic protocols. It just takes more time. And, and so realizing that and realizing that, um, you know, it's just going to take, you know, two months now to, or, or three months now to generate data that previously we could have done in, in only two months, you know, it just puts, sets everything back a little bit. Uh, and it, it gives us more time in the meantime to focus on other avenues, which is something we've tried to work with. Um, but that's been from the mouse side the biggest challenge we faced uh, there with just trying to get the research restarted.
1: Yeah, and you guys talked about too in your article just how long experiments, you know, that are already long to begin with and complex and have many stages um, with the sort of changing um, scene and, and environment and starting and stopping, that definitely adds additional complexities to it. Um, Jumping off of what you mentioned um, towards the end there about how it's been an opportunity to pivot into some of the COVID-19 research, um, maybe the three of you could talk a little bit about how, that, how you've been involved in that and has it been um, something that you've been able to incorporate uh, closely with the regular research that you normally do or is it something that you've had to completely shift gears? Like how have you navigated that? So I, I've struggled
3: a, a little bit with this topic over time. You know, I, I study ARDS at, you know, before all this happened, and we are now in the midst of a worldwide pandemic of ARDS. And, um, you know, I think when the pandemic first hit and uh, there was this um, movement towards trying to better understand um, the syndrome of lung injury that results from, you know, COVID-19, a lot of people were kind of pivoting their laboratory operations exclusively to the COVID, and, you know, the NIH was offering uh, supplements for existing grants, and, and so I think there was funding available, potentially, and there was this desire to kind of help and try and understand what's going on, and I think for established investigators or senior investigators, uh, that is potentially a less risky proposition. Um, you know, if you have uh, several R01s and you have a dozen kind of postdocs in your lab and you can divert some resources towards starting new lines of investigation related to the SARS-CoV-2. If you're a junior faculty member, an early career professional and maybe without as much grant funding or maybe your lab only has one or two people you know, even if you have a really great idea, it's a, a little bit harder to make that pivot just because, you know, there's, there are less resources, there's less people and less time in a day. So personally, what that looked like for me was I, uh, you know, I resisted to some degree trying to kind of change uh, the big picture of what we were doing in the lab. You know, we have a couple of areas of focus that we've been working on. And rather than shift everything to COVID-based research, you know, we tried to continue as best we could with our studies looking at mechanisms of lung injury because we felt like they would be relevant for um, patients with COVID-19. And in particular, we study the effects of mechanical ventilation and how that can uh, worsen lung injury. And so that being said, you know, uh, I did get involved with some kind of clinical studies. Uh, we have a clinical trial looking at zinc metabolism in patients with ARDS, and we submitted a, a supplement to look at ARDS from COVID 19 uh, in that study. And I'm involved with some preclinical models here doing some more basic work. Uh, so for me, you know, I didn't kind of pivot entirely to COVID based research. But uh, I looked for ways that were complementary to my existing research program that weren't going to divert too much in the way of resources. And I, I don't know whether that was the right decision. Uh, I, I don't know. You know maybe it would have been better to kind of be all in and shift focus to COVID. Uh, I think this will be one of the things that ultimately time will tell. But th- that was my approach to it, at least.
2: So I actually made the calculated decision not to shift any of my research to COVID research. Primarily because I felt like we were, our research was moving forward in some kind of new directions. And again, we had limited resources, limited people. Um, and so I decided, you know, not everybody needs to do COVID research. I think um, eventually time will tell if I need, you know, have something to contribute in that area. So instead, um, I kind of joined the clinical realm of things, starting to see patients in a post COVID follow up clinic. And so that's kind of the area that I've been contributing in rather than and doing registries that, that way rather than shifting my whole research portfolio over because I'm at a point where I'm in the middle of a K08 award. And so I have to start thinking, I have to be thinking very closely about what an R01 would look like and taking an extra year to do some COVID research would probably shift me away from being able to do that on the timeline that I was already set out to do it on. Yeah, and Mark, I think you mentioned you had started looking at some
1: some chart based work. Um, so yeah, it sounds like there's a there's a spectrum there, and um, it's impossible to know at the moment. But um, it seems like all of you have been doing what you can to keep the ball moving forward, even as um, as there have been obstacles and things are changing over time. Corinne, um, you had uh, mentioned a little earlier about feeling like. Uh, Acknowledgement from not only peers but also leadership um, as to the the circumstances um, was helpful. Um, can you say a little bit more about um, about that? Like, I appreciated in the piece that you all focused on what it was that our mentors and our leaders and our institutions um, can be doing to supporting us, as opposed to mainly saying that the scientist or the physician themselves really needs to take this on themselves to to overcome this barrier, which I think is sometimes the, a pitfall when we talk about bigger picture things in wellness, for example. So um, in thinking about what your mentors and uh, leaders around you have done that stood out or what you guys as mentors to other folks um, have been able to focus on to, to support each other and to feel supported during this time.
2: So I think as far as um, my mentors, you know, certainly they have been really great about providing reassurance and um, ab- about the fact that things are moving, you know, along a timeline that's a, that's fine and that's working well, and that pro- you know productivity is still being made even though I may not think it is. Um, so that that certainly has been helpful. I think meeting with other senior, like pulling in new senior mentors to get their perspective about things has been really helpful. Um, And then I think at the institutional level, um, our institution has allowed for tenure clock extensions that you could apply for, which is extremely helpful and I think supportive. And then also our leadership has, along with other institutions, have sort of banded together to reach out to the federal agencies to talk with them about whether or not they can do anything at the federal level for people who have grants to extend grant timelines Um, early career early stage investigator status those types of things and I think those discussions are active you know as we speak and so I think more more information about those next steps are going to be coming out um, as sort of the new year and new administration rolls in at the federal level so I think there are multiple levels of support and so that's all been helpful and I think you know, again, none of us realized that this was gonna be such a long haul at the beginning. So I think it's it's really changing how we're interacting with our mentors, how we're interacting with institutional leadership and thinking about things moving forward. So.
0: I can certainly say, um, you know, for me, the, uh, you know, my mentors have played a, a big role in helping to identify and develop, you know, some of these other um, avenues of, of investigation in terms of these, um, you know, some of the chart review studies uh, both in terms of helping to develop some ideas um, and troubleshoot some of those those issues since that's a newer line of, of investigation. Um, I think you know the administration has been the division administration has been really helpful with trying to identify collaborations, uh, trying to uh, pull folks um, into some of those collaborations and into opportunities, you know within the division. And so, I said, I've been able to supplement some of my research time with some of the COVID clinical trials that we're enrolled in. And that's partly through the division, uh, you know, reaching out to me about, you know, recognizing that the asthma Institute isn't running any trials right now. And so, um, you know, we have capacity, you know, to take on some of the co-investigator and medical monitor work for some of these other uh, COVID trials uh, that are being run. And so I think, again, that's an example of the division trying to look for opportunities to um, bring other folks into some of these trials who might not normally be involved, you know, with the COVID-specific uh, clinical research.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's probably an unanticipated um, silver lining, maybe in forming collaborations with people that you didn't think that you'd be working with or talking, even maybe between institutions um, on projects that were never in the works prior to that. Um, which is pretty nice. And to your point, Corrine, about like timelines, that really resonates, right? Like there still is a timeline, it just maybe is di- a different timeline. And time seems to be moving in a very different dimension than I think any of us ha- have ever been used to before. Um, you guys mentioned uh, in the piece about. Um, different ways to engage with uh, professional societies and to think about uh, networking uh, during this time, which is something that I think all of us um, felt a great loss about back in the spring. You know, Many people had projects that they were excited to present, uh, again, collaborations that they were looking forward to make um, at ATS or other uh, meetings. Um, for for you all, um, maybe you can reflect on ways that you've been able to engage with professional societies or to um, attempt different ways to mentor in these last few months.
3: I'll say uh, one of the things that I've really appreciated is um, through some of my activities uh, with the ATS, I've been able to kind of connect with other early career professionals. So I'm a member of the our CMB Assembly Early Career Professionals Working Group. And uh, that group has been working over the last several months to really address some of those issues, to find ways for early career professionals to network when we can't go to scientific meetings and to find ways to do things like give invited presentations, right? part of, part of the promotion process is developing a national reputation. And in part that comes from visibility and giving presentations at scientific meetings, but it also comes from things like giving invited presentations at other institutions. And obviously when you can't travel to places that becomes more challenging. But I think uh, institutions and divisions have been, um, you know, clever and forward thinking about that and found ways and obviously with, you know, Zoom and Teams or whatever your virtual platform of choices, a lot of things are possible that wouldn't have been a couple of years ago. And so I think one of the really good ideas that I, I believe came out of the PhD basic and translational scientists working group through the ATS was putting together a list of early career professionals that were interested were willing to give um, invited presentations in a virtual format, right? Because, and that helps everyone because you know, a lot of people who are scheduling these research seminars, right, they need to find people to give talks. And once you've had everyone in your division talk a couple times, right, that it's good to have variety. And if people can't travel, then one way to do that is to do it in a virtual format. And so they put together a list of early professionals that were interested and excited about the possibility of giving these talks. And I just thought that was a really clever idea. And we've tried to incorporate some of those into some of our research seminars here at our institution, and. I think the other thing I would say is having the opportunity to work with some of these uh, early career professional working groups provides an opportunity not only to work on the initiatives that you had kind of set before all this happened, right? Which was to promote early career professionals in general, but to provide this sense of community, which for me has been one of the most important things, right? To you know be on these Zoom meetings and not only you know, do the work that is set in the agenda, but to uh, Talk to others about how things are going and to learn from their experience taking care of patients you know at the beginning of the pandemic you know what are what are, what are you guys doing with uh, your threshold for intubation are you intubating early or are you using you know heated hot... and all those things kind of come up as small talk in some of these online zoom meetings and so that sense of community has been really uh, helpful to me and has provided an opportunity to kind of network and collaborate in a virtual world where it may not have been possible otherwise.
1: Yeah, it sounds like we. I, I know that everyone is longing for for connection with people, um, and so it sounds like you've been able to harness the um, those collaborations, uh, both from a personal standpoint, just to be able to chat with folks, a clinical standpoint to check in on what are the best practices maybe going on, and then also professionally, which is great. Karine and Mark, any experiences? Um, about networking or professional society engagement, you want to add?
0: Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll throw in a, a quick plug for our um, the AII Assembly did a, a podcast on virtual meetings, um, and you know ideas on how to interact with those um, and network there. Um, and I think it's still a valuable platform. It's just one that folks aren't as used to engaging. And I've done a, a couple of these meetings now. Um, and it's a little bit hard. I think you just have to be a little bit more intentional about the networking aspect, uh, of really being present for live sessions and being engaged in the, the chat box. Uh, but a lot of the meetings are really putting effort into creating um, networking opportunities around, um, you know, around the meeting. Uh, and so a lot of them have, uh, one meeting had uh, post-presentation chats like Zoom breakouts with presenters for folks to go to. Um, You know, there's also the social media, you know, feed as well with Twitter um, is another way that a lot of these meetings are trying to encourage engagement actively during a session. Um, And I think those are tools that we don't often think about with networking because they're very different than the in-person networking that we're used to doing. Um, But I think that's going to be, you know, both a a tool going forward during, you know, during the pandemic while we're having virtual meetings. But also I think a, a lot of the societies are looking at integrating these, permanently going forward as a way for folks who can't physically be at meetings to still be able to be part of that and, and network um, and engage you know, with with uh, colleagues. And so I think this is gonna be a big tool um, uh, going forward for, for folks to learn and, and feel comfortable with and a big opportunity there as well.
3: Yeah, I'll echo that as well. I think one of the silver linings has been, you know, getting someone to engage in a virtual format requires a lot less time potentially and certainly less cost. So one example I'll give you is that the research institute where I work, they have an annual research day every fall and as part of that um, they often have a career development panel session for trainees and I coordinated that session this year and had the opportunity really to reach out to several people from around the country who you know in an ordinary year we wouldn't have been able to fly in kind of research scientists from pharmaceutical companies in new jersey or uh you know medical writers that live in another part of the country have them all come together and sit in a room but that was essentially what we had over a virtual platform and i think that was a really valuable experience for those trainees to get to interact and then they were able to network with those people and contact them afterwards and i think that helped with their job search so i think like everything there are always the pros and cons and uh, i think there are a lot of advantages to this uh, virtual format and it certainly requires a lot less resources than in person um, events for some things and i i think like anything you can certainly get tired of it and it doesn't replace that Entirely the in person interaction that I think we do all crave, but I think there probably is a role for it going forward. And I agree with Mark, it'll be interesting to see how some of these get incorporated in, in the longer term.
1: Yeah, I imagine we're headed towards some hybrid uh, type meetings uh, in the future for sure. And yeah, it's a great opportunity to have access to people that you may not have had access to because it is that much easier. There's a much lower threshold to being able to to zoom in with folks across the country for brief for brief things or, or even giving trainees access to people that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise have had access to. Um, which leads me to another question, um, mostly focused on Josh. Um, how have you been managing trainees who are thinking about accessing this pipeline uh, as career scientists? You know, how, as an APD, have you been counseling them and supporting them or fostering resilience in this group who is looking at their future and maybe feeling anxiety as before they even like dip their toe in the water?
3: That's a really good question. I I, I wish I had a good answer for it. Uh, Yeah, I think it's difficult. And, you know, we're entering the time of year. So every winter, January, February, uh, our first year pulmonary and critical care medicine fellows, they get a month long break from clinical service and they have a month where they're really focused on uh, thinking about the research projects that they wanna pursue during their second and third years of their training. And we're in the process of kind of coordinating what that month is gonna look like. And, you know, normally that's a lot of in-person activities we have you know, mentors come and give overviews of research projects that fellows can get involved with. And uh, so fellows hear from a variety of faculty about the different options. And then if something sounds interesting then they typically go and have a cup of coffee and talk. And there's that kind of organic uh, type of mentoring relationship that kind of occurs. Sometimes it's a good fit, sometimes it's not. You know, now I, I worry a little bit this year as we plan that curriculum what that's going to look like in a virtual world, because I think, you know, doing that over Zoom or in a virtual format can be a little bit more challenging and it's harder to get to know one another. So I think from a very practical level, we can probably still deliver all the same content, right? We can tell fellows about uh, how it's important to select a a mentor and a project that you're passionate about working on and things like that. we can teach them some of the basics of research methodologies, but I, I do worry uh, for, especially for MD fellows who haven't had a lot of prior uh, research experience, what that'll be like. And so I don't know that I have any good answers other than that we are, um, you know, we're going to give it our best shot, and hopefully, I think over time, uh, you know, as we transition back to doing things in person, that there won't be too much time lost. I will say. Uh, on the other side of that, and one of the positives has been, you know, we have a, our fellows that are currently doing their research projects in their second and third years that we have research advisory committee meetings as most institutions do for those fellows. And, you know, I think to some degree, those have been a little bit easier to schedule uh, and, and the virtual format, I think, lends itself really nicely to that because, you know, you can share your screen and give your presentation the way you would in person. And, you know, it, sometimes, it's a little bit easier instead of having to get everyone all in the same room together, people can kind of you know, join the virtual format from wherever they are. So like everything, pros and cons, I think it's uh, anxiety provoking time for fellows that are interested in pursuing an interest in an investigation, especially with the, as cases continue to rise or remain elevated, they've fellows like faculty alike have been called upon to have uh, Increased, you know, clinical commitments and to take care of the patients that have gotten sick. So, uh, I think it's a challenge, but um, everyone. I've been impressed by the resilience of, you know, almost everyone, and especially the fellows, uh, who have um, continued to kind of go above and beyond. And we're we're very fortunate here. We have our fellows don't complain. they they just kind of do the work, and um, and that's that's been inspiring for us as faculty as well.
2: Karine and Mark, yeah, any. Uh
1: reflections on that.
2: Yeah, I think one of the key things that I that I do worry about is that at least in particular for basic science, we have always had a pipeline leak problem where, you know, along as people go along their routes, they they say, "Oh, I'm I'm interested in research. I'm particularly basic science research." And then somewhere along the way they they drop out and they drop out of that field and then they head towards a full clinical career or just away from the lab in general, um, particularly because of struggles that that they may face. And I think this is a very risky time for us to lose a really key population. Like, you know, we need physician scientists, clinical scientists, um, you know, med-ed, we need, and then basic scientists. And so I think we are, we are at really high risk for having a lot of leak. And so we have to be so supportive of everyone as much as we can, in particular trainees at the, you know, even at the graduate student to residents, to fellow level, we have to make sure that they can see an end, a light at the end of the tunnel and that they're supportive and can identify mentors who can kind of help pull them through this. Um, And so I think, as junior faculty, I feel like we can be try to set really good examples, even though we're you know, facing some of these uncertainties ourselves, but that we can be good examples for them to say, hey, stick with it. You can make it through this and to really try to identify you know, what they may really have a passion for um, and to stick with it so, so that we don't have that pipeline leak. Otherwise, we're going to be in a world of hurt in, in you know, five, 10 years when we realize what happened during this time.
1: Yeah, and actually from there, I thought one of the um, lines that stood out the most to me and I thought was really important out of your piece was um, around diversity and inclusion as it relates to support. Um, Like you guys pointed out just how vulnerable early career physician scientists are at baseline. And then you add on top of that, the extreme uh, risk that, uh, women and underrepresented minorities who are physician scientists who are already at highest risk for, for falling out of the pipeline um, due to extreme like levels of l- cognitive load and extra requests of their time um, contributes to it. So um, you all said the most disadvantaged should receive the most support to ensure career advancement and foster their resilience. And that line just really stood out to me. Um, I don't know what practically, you know, what things, if any of you guys have seen anything practically being applied to this, but I do hope that in the same way that the pandemic certainly is affecting um, more disadvantaged populations and um, communities of color, I think too, our focus should be on supporting um, scientists uh, who are also disproportionately affected by this, by the pandemic in their careers as well. Um, And then the... Um, the last thing I'll, uh, we can end with is just, um, communication was something that came up many times in your piece about how that can be a a real, uh, instrument for combating some of these challenges. Um, I wonder if you all could think about, um, aspects of communication that you have been trying to, um, Promote yourself in communicating with your lab, with your postdocs, with your trainees, or things that your leaders and mentors around you have been doing well um, from a communication standpoint that um, we can uh, uh, hold up as uh, positive things that people have done.
2: I think, as far as uh, my trainees in my lab go, you know, I tried to ha- make sure that. Um, we, when things were shut down and everyone was working from home, you know, they were struggling just as I was struggling. They were really having a hard time with the same struggles. And so I think it was having frequent discussions that, that those feelings were common and, and really reaching out to them and, and asking, you know, are you stuck on anything? Is it, you know, where can I help? Um, and trying to identify and just making sure they knew I had an open door policy and that I was there. Um, and then once the lab opened back up, making sure that I was there and present as much as possible when they were there uh, to really kind of get that socially distanced FaceTime in, um, and making sure that we were having frequent, frequent discussions. And really, those those discussions then opened up into you know they were able to kind of voice what their concerns were how those were changing over time and kind of looking back, I've been able to see, I could tell which periods they were having where they were really stressed out about things. And now things are better, you know, and they're, and they've, they've sort of been resilient through that. And so that was helpful for me to see. And then it made me realize how I was interacting with my mentors and sort of doing the same thing with them and just frequent short, but very goal oriented meetings to say this is what we're going to talk about today, and what I'm struggling with, and or what things are going well, but that they were maybe may short because a lot of our mentors had other constraints on their time, maybe you know they were pulled away for other administrative duties because of COVID, things like that, and so you know being just very cognizant of of the time crunch.
3: So w- one of the things that I really appreciated from our leadership. Uh, with regards to communication was transparency. And um, I think this was really evident with the expansion of clinical services as you know more and more patients with COVID showed up to the hospitals. And I think there were a lot of, there are a lot of difficult decisions to be made in terms of when you're expanding your clinical operations beyond what you normally do, right? A division is staffed with a certain amount of faculty and trainees, and there's a certain amount of work and when that amount of work expands. Uh, obviously, people need to kind of step up. Um, but I think one of the things that our leadership did really well was to be very open and transparent about that, and I think it made it easier and it was helpful in in terms of understanding what the needs of the medical center were and how our division's kind of workforce fit into that. And you know to some degree, I've tried to emulate that with the trainees in my laboratory and to you know be flexible and kind of transparent so you know for example some things some projects can be put on the back burner but if there are grant deadlines looming then you know you have to explain to them how you're going to prioritize or how you're envisioning the work of the lab for the you know foreseeable future um, one of my lab members is currently in the process of applying to medical school and we had had a, a big experiment planned you know, it was required multiple days over the course of the month. And uh, he uh, unexpectedly uh, got an interview to a program on relatively short notice. And you know, ultimately it was very clear that we decided that even though moving the experiment would be disruptive, it was, you know, we had to do what was in the best interest of, you know, his long-term career goals. And so we kind of moved that around. So having the ability to be flexible when possible and being kind of transparent and open about things are some of the things that I've experienced with regard to communication and that I've tried to you know, emulate for our, my lab members.
1: That sounds like, yeah, the, the takeaway points are um, for us to be as, as open and as um, transparent, not only with what we know uh, we can do and what we know is happening and also just with that, Um, with the ambiguity and just kind of admitting that we're all sort of sitting in this together and and taking it one day at a time. Um, In closing, maybe you guys can tell us uh, something you're looking forward to in the new year.
3: I'm very much looking forward to going to a restaurant to eat a meal, which I have not done for 10 months or so.
1: I know it'll feel crazy, right?
3: Yes, I'm not actually sure. It may be a little bit unnerving, frankly, you know, even if we're, you know, we're all vaccinated and case numbers are down. But uh, I think this, that whole idea of what the world is going to look like after this, mm-hmm. you know, we haven't really had the luxury of having time to think about that too much. And I think mm-hmm. it will probably be very different. But yeah, going back to some of the restaurants that I enjoyed before all this will be, that'll be a, something to look forward to.
1: That'll, that'll be how you know that things are better
2: (laughs) when we can actually have meals together again. Exactly. Yeah. I'm looking forward to an actual going out date night, whether it be (laughs) like a musical or musical and dinner something like that. I mean, date night, sitting in the backyard in front of a fireplace is, is great, but it's, but it's just different.
0: I am uh, very much looking forward to uh, playgrounds and uh, similar child-friendly places being open again. Uh, our kids are, are definitely getting a little stir crazy, which is understandable. Um, and it's something that like, you don't—we—we know, we didn't expect how much of a struggle it would be for them. And so that's very much something I'm. When we get there, will be very, um, very exciting.
1: Yeah, all those simple pleasures that we definitely. I think assumed were part of part of the regular day to day that have been taken away from us. I think we're all looking forward to that, and we certainly did not even delve at all into um, how everyone is balancing their life outside of work. Um, but certainly, that is a major role, and I appreciated in in your perspective piece that um, you all validated the realities of what. Um, home life may, may be like, um, which may be quite challenging in addition to trying to forward your uh, research and clinical careers. So um, hats off to you guys for being able to, to manage so far 10 months into this. Hopefully there is a glimmer of light at the end coming up here. Um, so again, thank you to our guests, um, Dr. Clement, Dr. Gautier, and Dr. Englert for joining us and giving their perspectives on um, their experiences as um, early to mid-career physician scientists and um, their reflections on what uh, kind of strengths uh, they've been able to grow over the last few months and ways that we as um, a community of um, pulmonary and critical care physicians can help each other and collaborate across institutions and within divisions to um, forward each other's careers. Thank you guys. Um, And thank you all uh, for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.